Welcome to episode 51 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Melissa Chaikoff. Melissa is a co-founder and chair of Usher 1F Collaborative, a nonprofit foundation whose mission is to find a treatment to save or restore the vision of those with Usher syndrome type 1F. Usher syndrome is the leading cause of inherited deaf blindness. With two daughters affected by Usher 1F, the cause is very personal to Melissa, and she is determined to save her daughter's vision. Prior to founding Usher 1F Collaborative, she worked for 14 years as a donor research analyst for nonprofit leadership. Prior to her work at nonprofit leadership, Melissa was a contributing author on the topic of English language acquisition of children with cochlear implants for the book written by Tom Bertling entitled Communicating with Deaf Children. She also worked as an outreach coordinator for the Auditory Verbal Center of Atlanta and as a system analyst at the Meter Corporation. She is currently a state champion for the American Cochlear Implant Alliance, a past board member of the Gift of Hearing Foundation, the Cochlear Implant Association, the Auditory Verbal Center of Atlanta, and served as a coordinator and associate editor of Contact, the publication of the Cochlear Implant Association of America for six years. Melissa holds a master's degree in engineering from Johns Hopkins University and a bachelor's from the University of Pennsylvania in applied math. She lives in Boston and has three adult children, two with Usher syndrome type 1F. It is my pleasure to welcome Melissa to the podcast. Well, Melissa, thank you for joining me on the podcast. And Let's start with you at the beginning. So tell me about your your life, where you grew up, all those things. Uh, So I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Went to college in Philadelphia, intending to return to Baltimore and stay. I went to grad school at Hopkins, where Mm -hmm. I met my husband, who was in his last year of medical school and had already applied for his residency in Boston. Um, and so I finished my master's degree and moved to Boston. Um, while we were in Boston, our first child was born, Rachel, um, in 1987. And, um, I quickly suspected that she couldn't hear. Um, I don't know how because I was a first time mom. Um, but I noticed she didn't startle. And then Mm -hmm. I, 
tried to make her respond, but at her first pediatrician's visit, she was three weeks old. He told me I was an overly anxious mother who didn't <laughs> understand how newborns react to sound. Yes. I've heard so, that story before. <laughs> yeah, I went home. My husband was pulling out his medical school textbooks. Well, they're not supposed to really respond till four months. And <laughs> anyway, um, but at the two-month visit, the pediatrician noticed that Rachel's muscle tone was not where it should be she, mm-hmm. her head was floppy and so he suspected cerebral palsy and referred mm-hmm. us to a pediatric neurologist the neurologist didn't pick up on her hearing i asked him and he rang a bell by her head and he said well we can we can check her hearing and um it was about a week or so later that we were told by the audiologist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear that it should take about a half hour. Uh, two and a half hours into it, mm. we were still sitting there. Mm. Um, and she called us back and said, you were correct. She has a severe to profound hearing loss, mm. which meant absolutely nothing to me. Right, right. <laughs> I had no experience with deafness other than you know older adults who were hard of hearing or you were deaf and so I was like what does that mean is she deaf um the right after that we had a cranky two-month-old baby and we were taken (laughs) right in to meet with another audiologist and their social worker and they said well there's you know are you familiar with the different ways to teach deaf child language no. And they said, well, you can sign or you can speak or you can do both. I didn't know anything. I said, okay, I guess we'll do both. And mm-hmm. um, they told us about one option in the Boston area, uh, a school for the deaf that I later learned was actually a voices off school. Oh, really? Okay. And one parent told me, that it was a school full of little children and it was totally silent. And interesting. so we were very fortunate and that my father was an elementary school principal at a private school in Baltimore. And he had um, a student, a girl who was, had been admitted for kindergarten and had a moderate hearing loss. And that summer, right before she started, she lost her residual hearing and uh, became profound. And her mother called and said, what should we do? And he said, let's try it. And we'll keep an eye on things and, and see how, you know, how she's doing. And at that point, this little girl was, I think, nine years old, 11 years old. And she was doing beautifully. And each year, my father would talk to the teachers for the next year, asking who would like to work with her. Her name, coincidentally, was also Rachel. And her mom became my mentor at the time, Esther Dubin. I don't know if you ever oh, remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, you need to join A.G. Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and so I did. They were giving free memberships at the time for the first six months. And she told me about a program at Emerson College in Boston, a parent-infant program, which we started um it was good for me to be with other parents dealing with the same thing um because i had other friends with babies who just didn't have a clue 
But I didn't think it was the best thing for Rachel. They had graduate students working with the babies. Well, we were fortunate and had a couple of graduate students who wanted to be there and wanted to be doing that placement. Some of the others didn't. And we got one over the summer who did not. And it was at that point that I was talking to Esther and she said, you know, if we had to do it over again, we would do the auditory verbal approach. Hmm. You need to go to the BB Center. They have a one-week immersion program. So I Mm -hmm. called and we were very fortunate. They had a cancellation for a month later. Rachel was 18, 17, 18 months old. So up we went to Easton, Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. um, and were immersed in the auditory verbal program. But Rachel wasn't really responding. Um, She had a behavioral hearing test at um, 10 months that showed she had some residual hearing. But I had seen her responses drop off between 10 and 18 months, and that's what they saw at the BB Center. We left there and went back to Boston to work with Jim and well, with Leah Watson at the time. And, um, you know, Leah and I were really simpatico with what we wanted and what I wanted, but Rachel wasn't responding. Right. (laughs) And she sent us to an audiologist in Winter Park, Florida. I'm blanking on her name, Judith Marlowe. Marlowe. And uh, we were supposed to be there for three days of hearing aid fittings and ear molds. And she sent us away after a day saying, there's no residual hearing. How about a vibrotactyl aid? So we were, my husband was a resident. We had, I was working part-time, but we were paying for daycare and auditory verbal therapy. We had next to no money, but we spent $1,000 on a vibrotactyl aid, mm-hmm. um, which was useless. Right. <laughs> um, but Leah happened to be on the phone with um, an auditory verbal therapist in Ottawa, Judy Simser, who said, well, I also have a child who's totally deaf. And she went to NYU and got a cochlear implant as part of the clinical trials. Right. That was August. We were there in October. We had a two-month mandatory kind of trial at that point with a body-worn FMA, um, they knew right away that she was, it wasn't going to do her any good. So they booked the follow-up two months later and her surgery the next day. So in December of 89, Rachel got her implant. Wow. The nucleus 22 at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, so it took about two months, and then we really started to see some response. She had been mouthing words instead of talking because she didn't realize we used our voices. She was a dynamite mm-hmm. lip reader. In fact, Leah kept working with us because she said, you're such an auditory verbal family. Even though she can't hear, I want to keep working with you. And we incorporated lip reading and Rachel really picked it up. But once she got her implant and, and we didn't know at that point, nobody knew what it would do for her. We just right. figured she's profoundly deaf. Um, she has absolutely no residual hearing. So at the very least, this will help her with safety. Right. Um, but she started to understand. And she started to talk. Um, and we just, we we did what's now called the sandwich approach, which <laughs> I had right. no clue about. But I was like, okay, she was a dynamite lip reader. I would say mm-hmm. something and then let her lip read it and then say it again. And over six months, she transitioned to totally auditory. Um, 
And so she was doing beautifully. And uh, when she was three and a half, our son was born. And at five days old, I think it was, the same audiologist who tested Rachel brought this little machine out into the waiting room and Mm -hmm. stuck the ear, ear molds in Adam's ears and was like, left ear passed, right ear passed. And I was like, what? (laughs) that's it so um we had seen a pediatric neurologist world-renowned pediatric neurologist at boston children's when rachel was 21 months old and she still wasn't walking and he said that this virus i had when i was five months pregnant created and caused her deafness and also created an isolated insult to her central nervous system that resulted in the low muscle tone and the late walking Mm -hmm. and all that and i said, okay, great, because I didn't want it to be genetic. And then we had Adam and well, maybe it wasn't genetic. Right. And Mm -hmm. then in 1995, our third child was born. And I knew even before she was born that she was deaf. And I didn't say anything because I was like, people are going to tell me I'm crazy. So how how did you know? Just mother's intuition? when, 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 When Rachel was diagnosed. I had friends who said, oh, I could tell my baby could hear because I'd be at a loud rock concert and he'd be moving around Uh, in my stomach. So with Adam, I had all these, my father was an elementary school principal. He got me those big symbols they use uh in elementary uh school and I'd bang him in front of my stomach. And by seven months, (laughs) I could get him to understand, I mean, to, to move. And then also like if my stomach growled, he would move around. And I stopped checking with Jessica because I couldn't get any of that to repeat. Wow. And so she was, wasn't even 24 hours old when she was diagnosed. So that was the point that we knew it was genetic. And she was, Oh, probably trying to remember how old she was. Rachel was eight. So she was probably about six months when um, we, I learned about Usher syndrome. And I learned that all this vestibular stuff that we had seen that everybody said, oh, it happens to kids who were deaf, except it doesn't happen to all kids who were deaf, that that was part of Usher syndrome. And so my husband took her, we were living in Atlanta at that point, working with Marianne Costin. We had moved Mm -hmm. husband's fellowship and stayed. Um, He took Rachel back up to Boston to the RP expert at Mass Ioneer. who checked her, but she couldn't tolerate the one part of the test that would have been definitive, putting the large contact lens in her eye. And so we left at the time inconclusive. Um, When I look back at that report, after we did get the diagnosis years later, I was like, it's all right here. I just think I chose to not read clearly what it said. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean Jessica, we we had we went back to NYU with her. The FDA guidelines still said age two, and we knew what how much work was involved for for Rachel and for us not getting an implant until two and a half. Right, and we heard that uh, the surgeon there had done a twenty month old. We were hoping for eighteen months. Jessica was fourteen months, and he said, "When do you want to do this?" And I said, "As soon as you're willing." He said, "How about next month?" And I was like, whoa, you've got a patient. And so we were traveling from Atlanta to New York. She got her implant at 15 months. um, And it was like night and day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that extra timing by 
she did have apraxia. So we did have to also work with an oral motor therapist, but you know, once, once we got that going, she was three, like in five months, her expressive language jumped a year. And by age wow. six, she finished auditory verbal therapy with language that tested age level at two years above. Amazing. Um, so they were mainstreamed in school, both of them, the whole way through. They um, at times had support, um, you know, one-on-one for about 40 minutes a day. Um, they both did beautifully. And then during a routine annual eye exam in 2006, we, um, Jessica and I were seeing one, it was an optometrist, in fact, one optometrist, this was at Emory, and Rachel was seeing another. And we all came out in the waiting room while our eyes were dilating. And she said to me, Rachel said to me, did anyone ever say anything about me having a constricted visual field. Hmm. And I knew, I knew, you know, even though when she was 15, knowing I was concerned, the eye doctor on her annual visit had looked in her eyes and said, clean as a whistle. And I Hmm. thought we'd escaped it. She was one of those who was late diagnosed with usher, usher type one, in our case, one F. Um, And that, the rest of that day was just a mess of tests and Rachel crying. And she was she was um, a month from starting art college. She'd always been a very gifted art college. Mm-hmm. I mean, very, very gifted artist. And um, so the whole thing was was a bit of a nightmare. And um, that was when I switched gears. And I had spent several years advocating for cochlear implants in children for auditory verbal therapy. And I said, mm-hmm. now I got to do this again, <laughs> but for their vision. Right. So that is kind of our story in a, in a nutshell. And let's sort of wrap up with, with, with both of them. So Rachel went to college right. And, and Jessica as well. Yeah, Rachel said that she kind of spent two days crying. And then she said, Mm -hmm. I've never let my disability stop me before. I'm not going to let it stop me now. If if there's a cure, I would always regret never having followed my passion. And she went to art college, majored in documentary photography. But then she went to graduate school at University College London because Mm -hmm. she had minored in anthropology as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And found that she loved cultural anthropology and using her camera as a tool to document the different cultures. Sure. So she did that. And then she worked at a desk job for about a year, almost two years, and said, this isn't for me. And followed another dream and went off to the Peace Corps, having right. fought for six months to be accepted because of her disabilities. And um, she went to Cameroon, Africa, where um, she... Um, did beautifully. Um, at the end of her service, the U.S. ambassador to Cameroon gave her an award that he had never done before. Um, what she had focused on was um, helping those with disabilities and bringing light to what it's like living in a developing country using her camera. Um, right. But she had done things like you know, there's no running water. And so the pump was up a hill and a woman in a wheelchair couldn't get to it. And so she had a tap installed down below so that the woman could get water. 
And there were other projects like that. She also met her husband, who was a fellow volunteer. They met on day one, and that was it. <laughs> um, yeah, and so um, she now works in global health development. Um, mm -hmm. I should mention she's fluent in French. Um, she, mm -hmm. in ninth grade, um, during the, the, at the end of eighth grade in the IEP meeting for high school, she said, I want to take French. And the special ed teacher, no, I don't think you should do it your, your ninth grade year. And even I was hesitant. She never, she continued to remind me. Um, she insisted. She took French and at the end of the year went and waved her A in front of the special ed director. <laughs> um, actually her. won her school's foreign language award in her oh, junior wow. year. And on the state level, won a spoken foreign language award her uh, senior year. Wow. Um, Jessica, we moved back to Boston in 2010. She, she went to high school here um, and college. Uh, she majored in sociology um, with a real passion for leveling the playing field and advocating for those with disabilities. She completed a master's degree uh, a year, two years ago, a uh, year ago at American University and then uh, is now in a PhD program in social policy at the Heller School of Brandeis. Amazing. Nothing's going to stop them. No. And so it did change your direction in terms of a, of a parent and an advocate to start and, focusing. And career. And career, right. Yeah. And focus on Usher syndrome. So let's define what that is at the moment, and, and then we can get into more details. So what is Usher syndrome for those who may not know? Sure. So um, with Usher, Usher syndrome involves both, both hearing loss and vision loss. Um, there are three subtypes. Type one is the most severe. They're born profoundly deaf. It also affects their vestibular system. So they have the low muscle tone, the, the poor balance. Eventually they, they manage, they sit, they walk, but it's just all delayed. And then during childhood, they slowly begin to lose their vision uh, from retinitis pigmentosa first with loss of night vision and then um, tunnel vision, um, increasingly narrowing tunnel vision so that eventually it's like looking through a paper towel tube with, with no peripheral vision. And, and then sometime during adulthood, it just all closes in and, and they're, they lose all their vision. And so the three types, um, do you want to talk more about those? or Sure. So type two, um, mm -hmm. They're born with a moderate hearing loss, and mm -hmm. the RP retinitis pigmentosa sets in a little later, um, usually in the teen years. And all of this, of course, varies. These are generalizations. Right. Um, and type three, they're born with normal hearing and normal vision and normal balance. Type two, I should add, doesn't affect the balance. Um, and then sometime during their teen years, they start to lose the hearing and the vision, and sometimes also the balance. Okay. And so my type, girls have type one. Type one. Yeah. In type three, how can you stick that again? Type three, they're they're born with normal hearing, normal, normal hearing. vision, normal balance, mm -hmm. and then 
the hearing and vision start to go and then sometimes also the balance. Gotcha. So before you got into, I mean, obviously you were a parent of these two daughters and and your son um, advocating for cochlear implants and auditory verbal and, and working hard in that area. How did that change? How did all of that change your career? When did you first started to sort of focus on Usher syndrome? Well, initially, my um, uh, undergrad and graduate degrees are in applied math. And I spent the first eight years of my career working as a systems analyst. Um, And when my son was born, coincided with the time when we moved from Boston to Atlanta at the time, just for a year, ended up being 19. Um, and we began working with Marianne Costin at the Auditory Verbal Center of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple things happened. First of all, I was I planned since I had two kids with a baby at that point, the younger one, that I would take that year off that was my husband's fellowship year. Mm-hmm. And Marianne would give me these lesson plans organize this is what your you know what your your goal is this is why this is the cognitive part these are the activities and that just fit beautifully with who I was I you know I wanted to know I wanted to have more than I could possibly finish so that I could just pour as much language in as I could mm-hmm. um and I saw the difference it made Rachel at that point instead of being in daycare three full days a week was only in preschool half a day in the mornings. And she came home and I was with her. And I saw the difference. And at that point, I said, I can't go back yet. Um, And so I spent three years just being a mom and being with my kids and working as hard as I could to catch Rachel's language up. Um, Because she did have a delay since she didn't get her implant until two and a half. Um, And then in 1994, um, Ellen Rhodes was still heading the Auditory Verbal Center at the time. And she handed out to all the parents these applications for Better Hearing and Speech Month poster child. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll fill it out. Well, Rachel got it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that was a whirlwind of a year with going to New York to be photographed and then going to Washington for the kickoff event. And um, at that point, um, uh, Larry Orloff, who used to, uh, was the editor of Cochlear Implant uh, Club International's publication, Contact, asked me to write an article about our experiences with Better Hearing and Speech Month. I did. And he said to me, you can write. Do you want to write more for us? (laughs) And I said, sure. And that ended up for me being the perfect outlet. It gave me something to use my brain to be more than just mom. But, you know, I didn't I didn't have to worry that I was going to be away too much with Rachel's language that I'd still be able to do all the follow up. I was also able to I ended up taking over the the family and children's articles and I was able to talk to the most fantastic people who um, one was Margo, was Margo Skinner? Is that mm-hmm. I have the name right? Yeah. I remember doing an article on her and then, you know, talking to her because I remember um, we had 
left NYU and were seeing an audiologist in Atlanta and she'd switched her from common ground, which was the mapping strategy at the time to bipolar and just having trouble. And just mentioning it to Margot Skinner in the, in the, in the, in, in the process of interviewing her for this article. And she said, you need to try this and this went to her audiologist. Well, it worked. So, I mean, this ended up being something that for me was beneficial for me and for, for my kids. So I did that for six years. Um, and I was also on the board of the auditory verbal center of Atlanta. Um, and that, while I was on the board of the Auditory Verbal Center, they hired a uh, fundraising consultant who only did fundraising and development for nonprofits. We were the same age. We hit it off. When I was ready to go back to work, when Jessica started kindergarten, I didn't want to go back to applied math. I had always said to my husband, who was a surgeon and a researcher, I said, you get to go to work and you get to make a difference in people's lives. You have work you're passionate about. I was doing engineering consulting work for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Whatever I did was so far removed from anything that was actually implemented. It, it, it didn't have the same kind of meaning. Um, and so I called this fundraising consultant and I said, I've spent the past 11 years as a volunteer in all sorts of nonprofit areas. Do you have any clients who could use my skills? She said, I can use you. So that led to 14 years for me, a total career change, working for her part-time in uh, nonprofit fundraising and development, uh, specifically the research, donor research. Um, And so then we got the Usher syndrome diagnosis and we got involved in the Usher syndrome community and realized that there was lots of promising research that because gene therapy was the most promising avenue, um, there was lots for other subtypes. There was absolutely nothing for our genotype, Usher 1F. And so I looked at my husband, who at that point was in a position to make a difference. He was a chief of surgery at, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. And I had 14 years in nonprofit fundraising and development. I said, look, if we don't do it, Who's going to do it? And we have the backgrounds Mm -hmm. to make a difference. And so in 2013, we incorporated and got our 501c3. And the name of your organization is what now? Usher 1F Collaborative. So let's let's talk about that. What is the goal? What is the mission of this nonprofit? The mission is to find an effective treatment to save and restore the vision of those with Usher 1F. We formed the foundation with a very focused mission of funding medical research for a cure because there are other organizations like the Usher Syndrome Coalition that do a great job of supporting the community, of bringing the community together for social and support purposes, Mm -hmm. Um, but they did not directly fund research. And so we partner with the other Usher Syndrome Foundations um, when when it's appropriate um, or beneficial to all of us. But we focus on funding research for a cure. And, and so how how has it gone over the past what almost what ten years? Yeah, we're in this fall will be our ten year anniversary. So we started with nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean. 
no research. We now have funded nine labs. We've uh, count about 12 therapies in development, gene therapies, stems, one stem cell therapy, and uh, some drug therapies. Um, but most significantly, we have one gene therapy that is showing phenomenal results in our uh, mouse and zebrafish models and is within two to five years of testing in humans. That's exciting. Yeah. That's incredible. So we are we are in a race against time. Um, sure. We're fortunate, quote unquote, in that my girls have a relatively later onset for type one. Um, so they don't drive. Whether they they might qualify um, in daylight, I don't know. It's just not safe living in a big city um, to, you know, not drive with 100% of your, your vision. Um, but they function well. They, they struggle at night. Um, but it's it's a race against time. And, you know, we've brought together, we started knowing two others with Usher 1F. We now have about uh, 60 families, 70-something individuals, other families like ours have more than one. And, um, you know, I care about all of them. I care about, you know, I, I, want, I want this for for all with with usher 1f and and the work we're doing even though it's you know the gene therapy is specific to 1f uh, can be applied eventually to other subtypes and the drug therapies we're now partnering with another another usher syndrome organization um, looking into partnering to fund testing of some promising drugs for for all of the subtypes it really is amazing what you, what you guys have done. Yeah, I don't. I I told my girls I will not retire until they're cured, and that I do want to <laughs> retire one day. <laughs> so, so you, you have a, a a personal mission to get this done quickly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we've we've raised at this point over nine million, almost ten million, um, funded about nine million in research. Um, and we still have, you know, a way to go, but sure. but we're a lot closer than we were ten years ago. Sure, that's exciting. So, um, how do you guys uh, raise money, or, or is there anything we can uh, do on the podcast to let people know how to donate, or or any events or anything coming up that others might sure. want to help support? So we have um, usher1f.org is our website, and there's a donation link there. We actually also recently incorporated in Canada, so mm -hmm. we also have usher1f.ca. Um, and then we have a 10th anniversary celebration uh, September 28th in New Jersey um, at the Mars Museum. That will be, uh, we started posting on our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, name it, all of them, LinkedIn. So we started posting about that event, uh, there. Um, and our goal is to, we are within, I think, $80,000 of raising 10 million. And our goal is by that 10th anniversary celebration to hit that $10 million mark. That's great. That's amazing. So, Melissa, I, I want to be respectful of your time. 
but I have to ask you, let's say that, you know, today or this week, you know, parents hear that their child has hearing loss. What, what advice would you give them at this point? Sure. Well, um, I think the first thing I would tell them is, you know, looking back on it, even though it seemed like this interminable process going through it, mm-hmm. um, it it goes by like that. And so enjoy your child. Let them be kids. Enjoy them. But the other thing that I would say, and really, as my girls were going through elementary school and all, it was Marianne Costin who really imparted this to me. They can. Never tell them that they're limited. They, they, there's nothing that, that should stand in their way of them doing what they want to do. And as part of that, one of the things I learned from her was don't assume they'll need accommodations. There's nothing wrong with accommodations if they're, if they're needed, but don't, again, don't assume they can't assume they can. And if they need support, then absolutely provide it. Um, I remember she had me working at the table with the radio on in the background. Mm-hmm. And she was like, keep turning it louder because <laughs> she wanted them to learn to listen in background noise. Right. And they did. And there were other things. I drove a minivan. I was driving carpools and Rachel would sit in the back and we'd have a conversation. She could hear me fine. My back was to her. There was engine noise. She could hear me and understand me. And I've seen other parents who are like, I've got to provide as clear a signal as possible. They've got to wear the FM in the car. They've got to wear the FM in the house. And I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. because one of the best gifts you can give your child is to to make them independent adults. And everybody in the world's not walking around with an FM, with a microphone. They need to learn to listen and communicate independently in the world. So you've got to teach them how to do that. And that's part of the whole listening brain thing. Train their brain to listen. If you train their brain to only listen with the clear signal, then that's all they're going to be able to do. And so I guess those are the two things that that I would say. Well, that's wonderful advice. And so you mentioned the things coming up uh, with the uh, with the foundation. How so? What's the website again, and how can people reach out to you if they want to ask questions or be in touch? Um, so Usher U S H E R the number one, and then the letter F, as in Frank dot org, and um, there's a contact uh, link on the website. Also, my email is m is in Melissa k is in Kate Chaykoff C H A I K O F at usher1f.org, so they can reach out to me directly. Well, Melissa, good luck with everything you're doing. You're definitely having an impact. So uh, I appreciate your time and, and just best of luck. Thank you. I want to thank Melissa for joining me on the podcast. And please, if you have some spare funding, spare dollars, a little bit of extra cash, and you want to support a wonderful cause, reach out to the Usher 1F Collaborative. You can do that by going to the website www.usher1f.org. You can get more information about Usher Syndrome 
and you can help support what they are doing in supporting the research that they are involved in and just making more people aware about the impact that Usher syndrome has on so many people. And with that, I'll be back in another couple of weeks with another episode. And if you don't mind, please leave us a five-star review. That always helps us to attract new listeners and new subscribers. And we really appreciate you listening and appreciate you so much. So with that, have a good week wherever you are. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.